Do you like eye complaints? I actually like seeing eye complaints. Patients almost always have something, even if it's just a little viral conjunctivitis. It's up to us to figure out whether their red painful eye or their loss of vision is due to a life-threatening or vision-threatening problem or whether it's something more benign. In this episode, we're going to talk through some of the more common causes for eye complaints in elderly patients. My guest on the show is Brian Hong, We recorded this on Halloween evening before my 11 p.m. night shift, and I called him a little earlier than we had planned, and he ran to the phone out of breath because he had been busily stuffing Moroccan Ottomans with his wife, which is, I guess, what the cool kids do of an evening these days. Welcome back to GemCast. I am joined today by Brian Hong, who is going to talk us through some super high-yield eye emergencies in the older adult. Brian actually went to med school with me and then did an ophthalmology residency at USC, followed by a retina fellowship, and now works in Massachusetts. So, Brian, welcome, and thank you so much for being on GemCast. Hey, thanks for having me. We're going to start with some case-based discussions. Our first patient whom we may see any shift at any time coming in. Our first case is going to be a 76-year-old female with a history of farsightedness who has complained of intermittent migraines or headaches over her eyes, usually during low lighting. Tonight, she was driving home during dusk and then had sudden onset, severe left-sided eye pain with headache and nausea. And that's what brought her to the ED. Now, Brian, I know with any eye patient, we always have to start with vision, pupils, and pressure. What is their visual acuity, which is the vital sign of the eye? What do their pupils look like? And if we can, what's their pressure? What else are we thinking about with this patient? Particularly in a patient who comes in with these sort of complaints, immediately I'm thinking about pressure problems because sudden onset pain in an eye with decrease in vision is usually pressure or inflammation related. It's pretty rare that vascular insults would result in painful vision loss. So I'm immediately thinking something in regards to pressures. But in this patient, I would want to make sure that they don't have fixed and mid-dilated pupils because this history is suggestive of acute angle closure glaucoma. So I would ask the patient how frequently this happened, how long she's been experiencing these symptoms, and what her vision symptoms are. People with acute angle closure often complain about halos around the lights. They complain of blurred vision and a frontal headache, and you mentioned nausea and vomiting. If you have a slit lamp available, I would, in addition to checking for the pupil status, go and look for swelling of the cornea. Usually, corneas are supposed to be really pristine and clear, but in this case, in suspected angle closure, I'd be looking for kind of a frosted glass appearance of an edematous cornea. High pressure, if possible, if you have a tone of pen available, that that would be ideal. And what Uh, pressures are we looking for? A normal pressure typically is from low teens to low 20s. Anything that's mid-20s or even higher than that, I'd be a little bit more concerned. There's kind of a loose range of up to 30 that's considered to be quote-unquote safe, but it's unique to the individual. So I'd set an approximate cutoff of mid to high 20s as being slightly elevated. Anything above 30 should be concerning. And anything that's above approximately 35 to 40 
would be vision threatening if elevated at that pressure for more than a couple hours. So you mentioned during your looking at the exam, you're going to look at the pupils, check for reactivity, and now we find this patient has fixed mid-dilated pupils, classic for acute angle closure glaucoma. And she's seeing these halos and lights. And now this would all be monocular, correct? So only in the affected eye. If we cover that affected eye, her vision in her other eye should be normal. Yes, that's correct. Uh, Rarely people come in with acute angle closure or signs of acute angle closure in both eyes, but that is rather rare. I think I've only seen one patient like that in the past seven years. So let's say we've done our exam, we've measured our pressure, it's in the high 20s to low 30s. How are we going to manage this patient? For a patient in that pressure range, their vision is not immediately threatened. So I would initially start with topical glaucoma therapy in the way of beta blockers, alpha-2 agonists, prostaglandin analogs, and carbonic anhydrase inhibitors. Some examples are Timolol 0.5%, which is a beta blocker, or bremonidine 0.1%, which is an alpha agonist, or latanoprost 0.005%, which is a prostaglandin analog, or dorzolamide 2%. You can initiate these drops immediately, all four of them, separating them out by a couple of minutes. And one cycle would constitute one drop of each of these medicines, and you can repeat that every 15 minutes up to three times and check pressures at the end of that 45-minute cycle. Really, when we talk about acute angle closure that's vision-threatening, we're talking about thing, pressures that are higher than that high 20s, low 30s range. Somebody had a pressure of 40s, 50s, which is a lot more concerning. I would start with those same medications And in addition to that, I may consider adding a topical steroid of prednisolone acetate 1%. In addition to that, if the pressure is not coming down satisfactorily, I'd probably start a systemic carbonic anhydrase inhibitor like acetazolamide, 250 to 500 milligrams IV, or if the patient can keep down tablets, 500 milligrams PO in one dose. In what cases would you consider using mannitol? In patients that are refractory to all of those medications, I I may consider that, but you have to take into consideration any history of congestive heart failure, renal disease, or or intracranial bleeding. People who remain in the 40s, 50s pressure range are good candidates for receiving mannitol, and they have to be kind of in a monitored setting to get that. I wouldn't just give them a dose and send them home. Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So to recap, for the milder acute angle glaucoma, so pressures in the 20s to low 30s, we're going to try the topical agents, recheck in 45 minutes, and then the higher range pressures, 40s to 50s, we're going to also consider the IV or PO carbonic anhydrase inhibitor, and then if they're resistant to that, we would also add on mannitol. So trying to throw everything we can at them to bring the eye pressure down to save their vision because, as you mentioned, it can cause permanent damage to the optic nerve within hours. Correct. Let's move on to our next case. And I will put all the the meds and doses and everything in the show notes online, so that will be easily accessible. Our next case is a 55-year-old male with a history of short-sightedness who comes in. First, he had some flashes of light in his left eye, and now he has one day, for one day, he's had floaters in that left eye. So when someone comes in like this, you know, it's not rocket science. We're concerned about a retinal detachment. 
So how would you evaluate this patient? As I learned on the first day of residency, we always check vision, pupils, pressure to the best of our, our abilities. But in addition to that, I tried to get a gross idea of whether there is a scotoma or a part of the visual field that's missing by doing confrontational visual fields in the four quadrants, you know, supratemporal, supranasal, infratemporal, infranasal, and kind of get a sense of which areas of vision are affected by, you know, potential retinal detachment. In addition to that, I'd also get a sense of if their central vision is affected, how long their central vision has been poor, because that triages how urgent retinal reattachment surgery is. So let's say in this case, it just started sudden onset six hours ago, and he does have loss of his central vision. So we're concerned that his macula is detaching. If his central vision is affected, I would classify anything worse than 2040 vision as central vision being somewhat affected. So in that case, it's either a macula recently off or macula threatening retinal detachment. In which case, I would call a retina specialist right away and try to get the patient evaluated either that same night or potentially first thing the next morning for urgent surgery. How long do we have before that macula can no longer be reattached on the retina? Well, the the retina can always be reattached um, by hook or by crook. (laughs) We can get it reattached. But once the macula has been detached from the underlying retinal pigment epithelium for 24 to 36 hours, the prognosis for good vision or good central vision goes down significantly. If it's within that 24 to 36 hour window, I would prefer to get the patient to the OR as soon as possible. If it's two days or longer, the general rule of thumb is however long it's been off, you have that many days to get it back on. Hmm. If it's been off for longer than 24, 36 hours, let's say it's been off for 48 hours, from the time you evaluate the patient, you have 48 hours to get the retina back on. But if you have an availability of a retina surgeon who has time in the OR, it's it's always in the patient's best interest to try to get that retina reattached as soon as possible. Sooner is better. Sooner is always better, yep. I want to backtrack just a minute. So we we were talking about doing the confrontational fields to Mm -hmm. help localize the defect. What else can we do to help make this diagnosis? You could also do ultrasound or B-scan, as we call it. Yeah, the linear probe, you could use one of those. Sometimes hemorrhage on the back surface of the vitreous gel can kind of mimic the appearance of tissue, like retina. It's really hard to see the direct ophthalmoscope. Unless you dilate the patient's, but if you can see a detached retina through an undilated pupil with a direct ophthalmoscope, that's great. And now while we are waiting, say, to have the retina specialist or ophthalmologist come in or referring the patient, getting them in the next day, is there anything we need to do or tell them not to do in order to prevent the defect from getting bigger? There's nothing really that patients can do to prevent further detachment of the retina. If it's going to detach, it's going to detach. I've heard some of the older surgeons that I've trained with tell patients to keep their eyes closed and to minimize activity because you know, vibration or turbulence within the vitreous gel can put more traction on the retina and thereby detach it more. The best thing that they can probably do is to stay NPO after midnight just in case the patient is taken to the OR that next day. Wonderful. Well, let's move on to our third case. In this one, we have a 
62-year-old male who's a type 2 diabetic who's coming in with new chunky-looking floaters that have now turned into kind of a cobwebby appearance. What are you thinking about with this kind of presentation as opposed to the floaters and flashes of our last presentation, and how would you evaluate it? This presentation is pretty classic for a vitreous hemorrhage. When there's a bunch of chunky floaters and they kind of dissolve into cobwebs, that's pathognomonic for vitreous hemorrhage. But there's a lot of overlap between retinal detachment, vitreous hemorrhage, posterior vitreous detachment. So whenever you're thinking one of those things, you always have to keep the others in the back of your mind because vitreous hemorrhage can accompany retinal detachment, vice versa. But in this case, again, vision pupils, pressure, the pupils will not be affected, even the most dense vitreous hemorrhage. So if it's simple, simply a vitreous hemorrhage, no matter how dense it is, even if the vision is hand motions, the pupils will should be brisk and equal. They won't be able to read the card, but they shouldn't have an afferent pupillary defect. They will have no afferent pupillary defect. But the evaluation is very similar to what I would go through for a retinal detachment evaluation, you know, try to get a sense of what their vision is, what it was like before, whether they've had a history of proliferative retinopathy in the past and a history of laser therapy for proliferative disease, new vascularization in the retina, namely. I'd also kind of get a sense of how dense their vitreous hemorrhage is with a direct ophthalmoscope. So if you stand a couple feet away from the patient in a dimly lit room and you get the beam really big and bright and you shine the beam to encompass both of the eyes, you can compare how bright the red reflex is in their unaffected eye and compare it to their affected eye. And if there's any sort of dimming or decrease in the red reflex, that's indicative of a media opacity or um, obstruction, whether it be cataract or vitreous hemorrhage or something else in the vitreous. In terms of differentiating mm -hmm. the vitreous hemorrhage and the retinal detachment, should we be able to see that on the direct ophthalmoscope? It's kind of hard, again, with both the direct and what the ophthalmologists use, uh, indirect ophthalmoscope. It depends on the degree of vitreous hemorrhage. If it's a very light hemorrhage, you should be able to see pretty well you could, the details of the retina. But with moderate and dense hemorrhages, it's going to be very, very difficult to see any any detail at all, even with the indirect ophthalmoscope. So depending on the density, you may need to do an ultrasound in that case as well. In the case of vitreous hemorrhage, you would see not a distinct linear hyperechoic reflection from retina. You would see a lot of like swirling medium echogenic material in the vitreous cavity. If you put the probe on the eye and you have the patient look back and forth, back and forth, every which way, you encourage movement and turbulence within the vitreous. And vitreous looks like it's freely floating and it whips back and forth very smoothly, whereas retina would appear more fixed, linear, and dense. I think that's probably the best way to differentiate the two, especially if it's hard to get a look into the patient's eye. That is a great trick. Retinal detachment, on the one hand, needs really quick follow-up with a specialist, whereas vitreous hemorrhages tend to be more benign and generally resolve on their own. And ultrasound is a great way to differentiate them. And as ER docs, we tend to love ultrasound for everything. I tend to use the linear probe, I tegaderm down the eyelid, and then put lots of jelly so it's a, a nice light touch against the eye, then scan through. But I love that trick of having the patient move their eye around to help differentiate the swirling hyperechoic material of a vitreous hemorrhage versus the more sharp linear definition of the retinal detachment. So that is a great trick.
And then in terms of management, what do you recommend for these patients? Let's say we're reasonably confident that there is not a retinal detachment. We think it's mm -hmm. a vitreous hemorrhage. What do we do for them? I'd probably have the patient seen within a day or two by a retina specialist as well, or even just if you can't get them to a retina specialist, you can get them to a comprehensive ophthalmologist. A vitreous hemorrhage is a lot like a snow globe where the red blood cells are floating around in viscous media. So to the best of the patient's ability, if they can stay upright or elevate the head of their bed so that the bottom of their eye is dependent, It'll allow a lot of these red blood cells to kind of settle in the inferior part of the eye, thereby allowing the ophthalmologist the subsequent day or two days thereafter to get a better look at the retina or the fundus. And then what do you guys do for them? It depends on where the vitreous hemorrhage is coming from. The two major categories are vitreous hemorrhage from proliferative disease in, in a diabetic, let's say. And there is vitreous hemorrhage from like a retinal tear or broken vessels on the retina in a, in a non-diabetic or non-proliferative retinopathy. So in the case of a vitreous hemorrhage in a diabetic, for example, the assumption is that they have little neovascular vessels growing somewhere on the retina, which have ruptured when the, the vitreous detached from the retina or peeled away from the retina. And in those cases, we'd probably want to treat the patient with laser or an injection of anti-VEGF like Avastin or Lucentis to make those neovascular vessels go away. Alternatively, if the patient does not have a history of proliferative disease or any reason for that, we have to be a little bit more suspicious that there is a tear somewhere in the retina because um, about 80 to 90 percent of patients who present with a vitreous hemorrhage who don't have diabetes actually have a little tear in their retina somewhere, which puts them at risk for a retinal detachment. So if somebody comes in with a very dense vitreous hemorrhage, hand motions, vision, light perception, vision, ultrasound doesn't show a tear, and we examine them one, two days after, still can't see anything, we start getting a little bit worried that there's a tear in the retina hiding underneath that vitreous hemorrhage, which we cannot treat with laser. So those patients, we'd be a little bit more eager to take to the operating room, too, to evacuate the hemorrhage and get a look at the retina, because you can't really treat what you can't see. That's neat. I didn't realize that you guys went in that often and, and looked for those tears and tacked them down. So for vitreous hemorrhage, we're going to get people to an ophthalmologist within the next day or two, ideally a retinal specialist, and tell them to stay upright so that the red blood cells settle down the snow globe of the vitreous humor and you guys can get a better look. Correct. Perfect. Let's move on to our fourth case. This case is an 87-year-old man, so now a little bit on the older side of what we've been talking about. He has a history of hyperlipidemia and hypertension, and he comes in with sudden vision loss in the left eye. He's also had some headaches intermittently and maybe some unexplained fevers. Tell me what you're thinking and how you would evaluate this person. Any older person, you have to have a high degree of suspicion. You must rule out temporal arteritis or otherwise known as giant cell arteritis, which is a vasculitis that affects the cranial nerves and can very quickly rob a patient of vision, in, not only in their affected eye, which is the eye with sudden painless vision loss, but it could rob the patient of vision in their other eye and affect other cranial nerves and cranial blood vessels. So it's really, really important that if an older person comes in with sudden painless vision loss in one of their eyes, you immediately rule out GCA or giant cell arteritis as the cause. 
what are some questions on the history or things on the physical exam that we should look for that might clue us into this? Kind of like a stuttering start to the vision loss. Usually it's not just boom, it's gone. Like the patient may have noticed that their vision was in and out, fading, and then, then it suddenly went away. Things like unintentional weight loss, scalp tenderness, jaw claudication, a history of polymyalgia rheumatica, and other cranial nerve palsies, especially cranial nerve 6, which is pretty commonly affected. So you might see somebody who appears to have like a lazy eye or they're unable to abduct their eyes, any other cranial nerve deficits really. Another sign is a palpable temporal artery, which is pulseless, feels nodular. When we're looking at specifically the eye exam, what things are we looking for? Very poor vision and an afferent pupillary defect in particular. The pressure should not be affected. If it is, you have to look for something else. This is actually one of those things where a direct ophthalmoscope comes in very, very handy because direct ophthalmoscopes are meant for looking at the optic nerve and at the macula. So if you can get a good look at the nerve, you'd look for a pale, swollen optic nerve with maybe a couple of splinter or flame hemorrhages. And then let's say we do this exam, the history is concerning, maybe we even get a SED rate and that's high, or a CRP and that's high. What are we going to do once we are concerned about this diagnosis? You'd want to start the patient immediately on IV steroids. Let me just tack on, in addition to the SED rate and CRP, the most sensitive and specific test is actually thrombocytosis on the CBC. So if you get a set rate CRP and CBC and one, two or more are abnormal, your suspicion should be high. You could start the patient IV steroids, methylprednisolone, 250 milligrams IV every six hours for 12 doses. And then after that, you can take them to PO prednisone, very high dose, 80 to 100 milligrams daily. Basically, if they're still in the ER after 12 doses Q6, then we have bigger <laughs> problems. Problem, right? <laughs> and then how quickly do we need to get an ophthalmologist in to see this patient? Is that like a wake them up at 2 a.m. or they can see them the next day? I mean, if they were giving them IV methylprednisolone, then obviously they're going to be in the hospital. But yeah. how quickly do they need to see an ophthalmologist? If the ophthalmology consult could be called that next morning, just so that it's on the doc's radar, he might be able to see the patient at the end of that next business day or even that evening. It's not imperative that the ophthalmologist see that patient right away. If you have a high suspicion, get them on the IV steroids. And the thing that clinches the diagnosis is a temporal artery biopsy within one week of steroid initiation. So as long as you get the patient on the IV methylprednisolone, the ophthalmology consult can wait about a day or so. So the important points for this one are asking about those historical clues to point us towards temporal arteritis, doing a good exam, doing a good fundoscopic exam, looking for that pale swollen disc with maybe some flame hemorrhages, and then starting the big IV steroids. Your tips about the SED rate, CRP, and thrombocytosis as also being clues to the diagnosis. Okay. Afferent pupillary defect is huge on this one. Got it. So we mentioned this was an example of a sudden painless vision loss. There are, for our next case, we're going to talk about a couple other causes of sudden painless vision loss and how to differentiate them. We are actually going to stop there for now, and the rest of the cases will be in GEMCAST Eye Emergencies in the Elderly Part 2. And feel free to tweet or email or post any comments on gempodcast.com. Thanks.